Welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I am glad that you have come along. This is going to be a very interesting show, and I'm thankful that you've checked it out because the topics that we're going to cover here are things that people bring up with me regularly. Denominations that are connected to my podcast, people are interested in it, are often connected to the themes that we're going to cover in today's subject. So I want you to check this out in just a minute. Now, before I do, just a reminder that this podcast is brought to you by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are training trusted leaders for faithful churches. You can find out more about us at wbs.edu. And Bill Roberts, Financial Planning, you can check out information about him. He's somebody who helps particularly people who are involved in full-time ministry Think about their retirement and how they plan for that. And you can find a link to his website in our show notes. That's really a helpful piece to really think about people planning for their future. So check that out from Bill Roberts. And finally, I just want to remind people that you can get a free tool from me if you go to my website, andymillerthe3rd.com. That's andymillerii.com. I have five steps to deeper teaching and preaching. It's a 45-minute teaching session and an eight-page PDF document that helps people go deeper in their study of scripture with the aim of thinking about how you can present that clearly and effectively. All right. So on today's program, I am very pleased to welcome to the podcast Crawford Gribben, who serves as professor of history at Queen's University in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Crawford, welcome to the podcast. Andy, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. And I'm really delighted you started off with an advert for planning for the future. Oh, exactly. That is going to be very connected to what we're going to talk about in eschatology. So we're going to get there. Um, you know, I didn't even think of that. And and this is an interesting thing for me because I, Crawford, I've become I've become a fan of yours just this summer. I, I did was not aware of your scholarship and your writing, but I found one little book in a library in Manchester, England, and that led to another and that led to five. And so or four or five books, so in, in a variety of articles. So I've been really, uh, I really appreciate your scholarship and the work God's called you to do. So thanks so much for taking some time to be with me today. Well, I can yeah. tell you for a slow summer, Andy. Uh, I'm sorry for that. There wasn't many more distractions. <laughs> <laughs> well, and interesting enough, I came. I, I had this weird phenomenon where I came upon one of your books. And I thought, oh, this will really, this will really help a project I'm working on. And then I heard you on another podcast talk about a whole nother thing you're working on about the history of the church in Ireland. And then I'd say I had a Crawford Gribben summer. Let's just say <laughs> that's more than anyone else can see. <laughs> this is what happens when you get to be specialized in the area more and more. So, so here's what's interesting. This book that I found of yours was a history for 500 years of the way people have talked about the millennium in eschatology. So this is fascinating to me that this has been like a, a certainly a stream for a while and you're right. And then you've edited volumes, you've written on this and particularly even what's happened in American context. And we'll get into that in a minute, but before we get too far, what is it that led you to be interested in studying the history of eschatology? That's a great question, Andy, uh, and thanks for asking it. I think one, I think a lot, a lot of scholars, right? A lot of scholars pretend to be really objective about the subjects they study and really curious about all of these phenomena. But I think mostly we're curious about ourselves and we're trying mm. to understand ourselves in different kinds of ways. We yeah. were just talking before we started recording about our respective backgrounds and how that helps us think about different kinds of, of questions and different kinds of topics. And for me, um, I got interested in eschatology because I grew up in a Christian group. 
that was very strongly influenced by these kinds of ideas um, and really had been shaped in quite profound ways by expectations of the rapture, tribulation, millennium, uh, and so on. And I grew up in Scotland where those kinds of ideas are not really part and parcel of everyday evangelical life. Mm -hmm. Um, In Scotland, the, the denominations, the biggest, most influential denominations tend to be quite cool on eschatology and not really make much of it. So as I was growing up as a teenager, I suppose I became aware that in the history of the church, some of these ideas had quite a big purchase, but also I became aware as it began to be more consuming, I suppose, of American Christian popular culture, that on the other side of the Atlantic, there was, these ideas were massive. And I was able to watch, you know, pretty horrifying films (laughs) and and read uh, pretty scary books uh, that were really dramatizing some of the things I was hearing Sunday by Sunday, but in a much more kind of accessible format. So, um, you know, as I I did my studies, eventually ended up doing a PhD, uh, did the PhD on 17th century Puritans and their view of the millennium, which obviously is quite different from most, but not all uh, contemporary uh, evangelical views. Um, of the end times so that really got me started yeah. and ever ever since then I've kind of been interested in two things I've been interested I've sort of continuing interest in Puritans um, and various aspects of their culture but I've also continued to be interested in the history of millennialism of millennial thought and I've traced that in various projects through from the 17th century late 16th early 17th century right the way through more or less to the present day so that's my kind of background and that's the the stuff that i'm interested in doing yeah it's interesting you bring it and we might this might come up later when we talk about um your book writing the rapture and the but i, I you mentioned the horrifying films and i i had a a, a, a i don't know what, what what conversion experience you call it but i certainly when i saw thief in the night for the first time you know and they were singing i wish we'd all been ready i was making sure i was ready buddy uh, yep. that, that was, yep. that was certainly a part of it and, and, and not, I, I, I make, I, I say that in kind of a light way, but I would actually say that that was a, a legit. And, and as I developed theologically thinking about how God has revealed himself through scripture, uh, the, the fear, uh, it, there, there is, there's an appropriate level of fear that comes and you want to be able like, Hey, look, if, if I don't affirm and, and, and people in the institution I serve don't affirm the rapture. Um, and I think that might cause some people concern right now. We're going to get into that and more. Nevertheless, I still think it's helpful to think about Jesus' return and rather not you're ready for it. So I can, I can understand that experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, whatever denominational spin there is in that topic, it is part of the Apostles' Creed. It is something that all Christians need to expect and live in light of and in joyful expectation. It, 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 this is what's interesting is I think I'm just going to maybe jump ahead of here of where I the questions I had sent you just because I think we we brought that up here. Sometimes in, in an American context, the rapture has become orthodoxy, but but I think people often confuse Jesus's return, the parousia with the rapture. So if you say you don't believe in the rapture, it's almost like the same thing as saying you don't believe Jesus is going to return. Is that something you found through the literature? Yeah, uh, of course, that that objection rests upon a differentiation that's really only introduced in the early 19th century, mid 19th century. So up until that point, parousia, epiphania, all of those kinds of of vocabulary are are thought to describe the same event. But only in the mid 19th century do they begin to get teased apart 
Um, and of course, in you know, in, in the UK, Christians who think about these things will hold all of those things together almost always as mm. a single event. Uh, I know it's different in some small groups here, but also generally in United States evangelicalism. Um, but yeah, that that that's a that's a that's a common thing. Anyone who pushes back on the idea of the rapture is sometimes thought to be denying the, the, the ecumenical Christian expectation of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Yeah, which is, as you said, connected to the Apostles' Creed. I mean, this is a, a clear teaching. So maybe it'd be helpful to think about some terms, too. And, and I appreciate how in a couple of your books, at the front, you have a glossary. Right. And why, why is it that it's so important to have a glossary when you're talking about eschatology? <laughs> well, because I think, as we just indicated, Andy, people use the same words in different ways. Yeah. And I think when you're starting a book, I mean, you, you can include like an introduction that defines every single thing, but maybe a glossary is a bit more efficient way to do that. So, yeah. um, you know, not only do theologians or everyday Christians use similar kinds of language with very different kinds of, of references, also social scientists do the same thing. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you, if you dip into 1970s, 1980s, even 1990s, sociology, anthropology of religion, you'll often find people making distinctions between millennialists and millenarians. Yes, yes, this and, is interesting. And, yeah, and it's very weird because they don't do so in a consistent way. And, and so, you know, as I was reading through a lot of this material, I just began to get really confused. So I thought if it was helpful for me to have a glossary, it might be helpful for some readers to have a glossary as well, uh, where in which I would not only lay out common definitions, pre-post-day millennialism, rapture, tribulation, antichrist, etc., but I would also make it clear that I am not a social scientist, that I abominate anthropology uh, and, and all of its <laughs> evil desires. Uh, and instead, I just try to coin terms or use terms that, that I think we can stand over uh, and not get too much caught up in them. So, you know, in the 70s and 80s, social scientists were using theological words with non-theological definitions. Mm. And they were also debating among themselves what those definitions should be. So, I, I mean, I think it's sensible just to sort of ditch that conversation and use theological language with theological definitions. And then we all kind of know where we stand. Yeah, that's great. That was that's really helpful. And it's a helpful cue for people as you enter into dialogue to make sure you're starting in the same place. Of course, that can all lead to an interesting place of thinking about the nature of language and power dynamics, and all these sort of things. But nevertheless, like it's just a clear state like this is what I mean. And, and while we're there, why don't we just go ahead and say, what do you mean when you talk about the millennium? In, in general, like what's that connected to? That will help people as we get into this discussion. All right. Thanks, Andy. So the, the millennium is the idea that there is an often 1,000 year period of time, um, which some people think of as being in the future, others in the past. Um, it's connected to the second coming of Christ in different kinds of ways by different eschatological narratives. So the, the, the sort of classical passage to find the idea of the millennium as Revelation chapter 20, um, verses 1 to 10, I think it is, describe this period of 1,000 years in which Satan is chained up. Um, and that's a, it's a fairly opaque passage, I think. It raises lots of questions. Who actually is there in the first resurrection? Is it just martyrs? Are there other people as well? So there, there's lots of, lots of key ideas, key apocalyptic eschatological ideas get mentioned in that passage without necessarily being fully explained and so what people do then when you read that passage is they pull ideas or themes from other new testament or even old testament passages into those 10 verses 
to more fully elucidate what they think uh, it's all about. And so the consequence of that is that Revelation 20 sustains or is made to sustain uh, a series of ultimately incompatible narratives about the millennium. Um, the one most common, I suppose, in the United States is premillennialism, the idea that Jesus comes before the 1,000 years to inaugurate the 1,000-year reign. Right. Um, there's also an argument uh, which is more historic uh, called postmillennialism, which is the idea that this present age of, um, of, of Christian influence in the world will gradually and successively convert the global population with the effect that we will move um, not effortlessly, but but seamlessly into this millennium at the end of which Christ will return. That's often known as post-millennialism. It's a very optimistic um, set of expectations about the, the triumph of the gospel in this age. Mm -hmm. And then there is often uh, uh, probably the most common um, millennial position among Reformed or Presbyterian people um, and Catholics as well um, is, um, is the, the old Augustinian um, idea that Revelation 20 is actually a metaphor. Right. So it, it's not really describing a 1,000-year period of time. It's, it's, it's describing an experience. So it might be the experience of saints after death, or it might be the experience of the entirety of church history or most of church history, or a very small number of people believe in the early medieval, early medieval period. It was a 1,000-year period, but it ended around the year 1,000 or slightly after the year 1,000. But basically, it's metaphorical. So those are the three positions over here in the UK. Almost all evangelicals are amillennialists. Where you are in the United States, almost all evangelicals are premillennialists. But there's always been this kind of bubbling up of post-millennial hope and aspiration. Um, we see it um, in the early part of the 19th century in the United States, where both Northern and Southern clergy uh, are really buying into yes. this idea of, of the expansion of what America or what the United States, I should say, represents. Uh, and all of those hopes really collapse with the Civil War, which leads, I think, to a movement away from the optimism right, of post-millennialism right. to a much to, to a, 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 an eschatological position, premillennialism, that I think is, is, is better able to explain experience the experience of life after the war with massive numbers, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of casualties. And I suppose that that raises the issue, Andy, the perennial yeah. issue of to what extent these eschatological debates are not being driven by competing readings of scripture, but are actually being driven by the context in which scripture is being read. Yes, this is what's interesting. And as you started talking about this with Revelation 20, the actual point of the exegesis of that passage is often not a part of this, the discussion. Right. We're teaching a class right now and, and focusing on auditors. And if people hear this, they can still probably get into it on Revelation, exegesis of Revelation. But so a lot of us are thinking about those passages right now, but often it's not really connected to the study of the passage, all these other ideas, like for instance, you just brought up the the civil the Amer the United the American Civil War, um, and the War of Northern Aggression. We call there it. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I'm a Yankee who lives in the South, so I have to be yeah. very careful, Crawford, uh, how this works. <laughs> I, you know, I was trying. I appreciated what you said because I do try to be respectful of the fact that America, there's North and South America. Uh, it's a continent. 
that I'm not the only American in the United States. And I was trying to make the Civil War fit into the word United States. Nevertheless, that's uh, so one of the interesting things that we have is wars play a big part. Of this. And, and, and then in the 20th century, the move away from post-millennialism also happened as a result of the First and Second World Wars. That's right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, you, you can read the Olivet Discourses, I suppose most famously Matthew 24, wars and rumors of wars are thought to be a sign of the end or represented as being a sign of the end. And uh, especially in the aftermath of World War One, um, uh, Bible expositors really seem to lose whatever hopes they'd retained here in Europe. Um, dealing with that kind of devastation. So it's kind of interesting if you look at the potted history of post-millennialism. In the United States, post-millennial expectations collapse at the end of the 1860s. Yes. In Europe, it's 60 years later yes. after the First World War. And of course, you know, but by the time you come to the early 20th century, there are different kinds of grounds for optimism of human progress. So the post-millennialism that collapses in the 1860s in the United States is a strongly evangelical post-millennialism that's realistic about the human potential for sin, et cetera. Whereas the post-millennialism that survives after that in Europe is a much more enlightened, shall we say, or yes. liberal kind of post-millennialism that's maybe much less rooted in traditional evangelical accounts of sin, salvation, sanctification, and so on, and much more rooted in what we might call nowadays humanistic ideas of perfectibility. Um, right. So it's two different styles of post-millennialism, which are doing two different kinds of things for the people who hold them. But yeah, you're right. In both cases, Andy, what they have in common is that war destroys those hopes. What's the distinction in between utopianism and millennialism? So like, it, it, or is there? So a lot of times, like what we might commonly refer to as the like you you bring up the kind of liberal movement you think of the social gospel and various groups yep. that saw the perfectibility of humanity and reason um but it's now we might call that a utopian idea whereas in the early 20th century that might have been thought of as post-millennialism is there a distinction yes that's a, that's a great question um I, I suppose you could say that millennialism is ancient Mm. Whereas utopianism maybe has a slightly more difficult history, maybe it's more difficult to reconstruct. So when you go back to Plato or something like that, you can find ideas in the Republic that might look to us utopian. Um, utopian literature, I suppose, is often satirical. Okay, interesting. So if you look at someone like Sir Thomas More's Utopia, 1516, yeah. wasn't it? Um, or more recent utopian fictions or utopian narratives, that they're often presented in great, they often present a, a version of the world in great detail, but designed as a foil or as a counter to the world as it is. Yes. Um, so it often has that kind of slightly acidic, slightly disappointed feel, which is kind of ironic because it's 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 meant to be positive. Yeah, yeah. But there is always this kind of slightly dystopian hope at the heart of utopian fiction. Utopianism, I, I don't know what you think of it. I'd love to hear, but I think of it as quite a modern phenomenon, post-Reformation yeah, yeah. post or Reformation and post-Reformation, but a modern style of writing, whereas millennialism, you know, if you go back to the patristics, there are so many of those early church fathers who are strongly millennial, often in weird ways. Um, but but there is, if you look at, you know, Bruegel or some of these other Renaissance painters, when they're depicting utopian situations they often seem to be drawing down i think a lot of those tropes from the fathers you know, ideas of fruit trees right. bearing so much fruit they're actually offering it to you to eat 
Um, and you know that's I think that's, that's a theme in some of those paintings. But, I mean, these things you... get tied over too in the. Oh, sorry to interrupt you. What is it? No, you go ahead. Go ahead. The, these things get connected to the um, uh, often what we think of as the, the very kind of orthodox idea, and I say orthodox, broad, broadly orthodox idea of the new heavens and a new earth, like a recreated earth. And what I found in my my study of William Booth is yeah. that he tends to confuse this as well. He might talk about the millennium in one way, and he's thinking maybe of the thousand years, but at, how he describes it is probably a picture of the language from the new testament and christian tradition yeah. of the new heavens and a new earth which is different from the millennium or it might not be it depends well, who you me. read you know yeah. exactly so um i mean i think i need to check i think the schofield reference bible when it comes to the new heavens and the new earth at the end of revelation puts that as the millennium i would need to double check oh interesting. But certainly okay. yeah but, but certainly within that kind of long stream of premillennial thinking um, expositors do divide over this very question. Uh, should we think of the new heavens and new earth as part of the millennium, or is it actually a separate thing? And sometimes people who argue that it's a separate thing nevertheless go back to the likes of Isaiah describing the new heavens and new earth and import that into the millennium. So in a way, there's a kind of having your cake and eating it simultaneously. But you know, it goes back to what we're talking about, Andy, about the way in which passages, even words, can mean different things to different people, the same words mean different things to different people. I mean, that's just, it's the classic problem of biblical exposition, isn't it? How right. do you deal with these things? Yeah, interesting. Now, it's also, I think, helpful for people in, in, in look, you, there's kind of part of me that thinks, you know more about me than I know about, we're thinking about eschatology in the United States, having read some of the things you've written. But um, it's interesting to, that a lot of times in the United States, there's not a popular understanding of the distinction between historic premillennialism and right. dispensational premillennialism. Right. So sometimes people will characterize premillennialists as these folks who just want to see the world destroyed and waiting for a rapture and the like. But but um, historic premillennialism is different. Could you, could you help us understand the difference between those two? Yeah, thanks, Andy. Yeah, it is different. Uh, and of course, just as there's there are varieties on the dispensationalism side. There's varieties right. in the historical premillennialism <laughs> yes. side too. So, you know, you can go back to the early church fathers that I mentioned before, and they are historic premillennialists in the sense that they expect the present age to continue until Christ returns to set up a 1,000-year millennial reign. That's different from dispensationalists who tend to argue, though there are variations, but who tend to argue that the present age will continue until the rapture, which will be followed by a seven-year period after which the second coming occurs and then Christ returns. So I suppose the big question um, that divides uh, historic from dispensational premillennialists is whether we are to expect a rapture before the second coming of Christ. Right. In other words, in how many stages does the second coming actually happen? So um, there are, while people, I suppose, are much more familiar with dispensational premillennialists now. There have been many well-known uh, historic premillennialists in the history of the church, most famously C.H. Spurgeon, I suppose. Sure. Um, um, can I mention Charles Wesley? I think there's yes. some evidence that he might be a historic premillennialist. You can correct me on that, Andy. No, I think you're right, yeah. Um, so uh, certainly that claim has been made. Um, and, um, you know, basically any, any premillennialist before about 1830, 1840, 
would inevitably have been an historic premillennialist. And it's only really from the 1840s on that premillennialists are offered a choice between the traditional interpretation of which the present age continues until the second coming of Christ, followed by the 1,000 years, and this other narrative, dispensational premillennialism, which is an innovation yes. in that period, in the mid-19th century period. But it's that dispensational narrative that gives us the big themes that we're mostly familiar with, I guess, today, rapture, tribulation, millennium, and then final judgment, new heavens and new earth. That's so helpful because that, that language from, in my context is primarily connected in any of those terms are connected to dispensational premillennialism, but that's not so with the history of the church, as you said, before 1830. And I want to ask a question about 1830 in a second, but I want to back up as, uh, well, go forward. It, interesting enough, like there still is this persistence in, I, I, I find, of historic premillennialism in England in the mid 19th century. So there is this like, um, there are key voices like the Earl of Shaftesbury, yeah. who is still pushing forward a historic premillennialism that causes like there to be social action. And this was a very socially active care person in history and interacted with William Booth and, and fought with William Booth particularly. But nevertheless, like those ideas of historic premillennialism were still present in that period. Um, but uh, back in 1830, um, what what is it what is it that happens there? Uh, obviously, this is a key time that that brings this new stage into um, uh, millennial thought. So tell us a little. This is a key area of your own research, and I'm asking a very big, broad question. But I'd love for you to tell us uh, your kind of summary of what what happens in that period. Well, uh, Andy, if I knew, I would love to tell you, uh, <laughs> but I just, I'm just not sure it's very, very clear. So mm. you know, we, we go back to the American Revolution. I like to think that's where things mostly go wrong, 1776. <laughs> uh, it, it, of course, gets followed by the French Revolution. And 1798, or 1798, there's a big revolution in Ireland as well. And so... A number of very prominent people who are associated with aristocratic families on the island of Ireland, but who are in declining fortunes, are having to cope with the growth of democracy. Mm. And the growth of democracy for them is a pretty horrifying thing because mm. they've been used to a kind of establishment in which they, as a group that represents 10% of the population, control everything and the other 90% of the population. So the growth, the slow and gradual expansion of democracy in the early part of the 19th century is literally threatening an end to their world. Yeah. Now, J.N. Darby, who we might talk about a little bit later on, is often thought to be the founder of dispensationalism, yeah. the, the chief architect of dispensationalism. He actually recognizes this in some of his letters. And, you know, he describes himself as an Irish Protestant who was witnessing the, 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 the very dangerous, tumultuous conditions at the start of the 19th century. Um, and you'll know from your, from your knowledge of the Salvation Army history, just how desperately poor yeah. so many people were, that the horrific circumstances in which the vast bulk of the population lived. In Ireland in 1851, a census reported that 50% of the population, fully half of the population, we're living in mud huts. It's one mm. of the reasons why so many people left to go to the new world. Um, the conditions here were really terrible. So naturally, people who find themselves in those conditions want to improve their lot. But for the people at the top of the social pyramid, they're improving their lot can be a very frightening thing. Mm. 
because it represented the end of an old constitutional order. And so in 1832, um, the British Parliament passes a Reform Act, which massively expands the number of people who get the vote, um, and it changes fundamentally the nature of British democracy. And so, you know, there, there had been a sort of romantic sensibility at the end of the 18th century that's sort of given towards apocalyptic imagination. You can see it in the, some of the art that gets produced, some of the poetry that gets produced. Samuel T. Coleridge, for example, was very influenced by this apocalyptic mood. And um, just as we mentioned before, what drives this new way of thinking about the end times is not necessarily radical new insights into the teaching of scripture. Often it's the, the, the questions that are posed by changing cultural or political circumstances. Mm -hmm. So just as in America in the 1860s, or the United States, I should say, in the 1860s, um, evangelical clergy move away from post-millennialism because it doesn't explain their world anymore. Right. So too, in the 1830s, a generation previously in Ireland, um, Irish evangelicals, aristocratic, are moving away from post-millennial assumptions of security and progress and advance and conservative order. They move away from that because suddenly they see that everything they've taken for granted is about to disappear. And that's mm. pretty much what happens. And so the there is in Dublin, in the area just south of Dublin and Wicklow and around the University of Oxford, a movement begins that thinks quite seriously about the condition of the church, that thinks quite seriously about political changes and uh, other issues as well. And of course, it thinks through all of these questions with an open Bible. And, mm. and it begins asking, you know, what have we got it right? Is mm. it possible that there's other ways of understanding the end times that means that Christianity is not going to be universally successful? Mm. That means that, that, that we don't need to be complacent about the future. Um, are there signs of crisis yeah. in the New Testament writings? And of course, once you start asking that question, it's not hard to see. Sure. And, um, and so they begin to develop new kinds of ideas. New leaders come up through them, most prominently, as I said before, John Nelson Darby, um, but many others as well. And they begin a very radical rethinking about the nature of the church. How could the church have gone so wrong? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The church was wrong in this area. Where else might the, the mainstream denominations have been wrong? And so they begin to ask these bigger, broader questions about the nature of ministry, the nature of denominational identities or obligations, about the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, about the necessity of having clergy, um, about what's the nature of true worship, what are the grounds of true Christian unity. And you know, this, this then begins a, a really radical primitivism, which of course we're familiar with yes, yep. in the United States. Um, in, in, in a little bit later, 1840s, 50s, and so forth. But, but here we see it kicking off in Ireland, and it kicks off in Ireland, and as it develops, this new way of thinking um, begins to emerge, which, as you mentioned before, differentiates rapture from appearing, or glorious appearing, um, uh, and begins then to say that things are almost at an end. There's no real point in getting involved in social amelioration mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's, there's no point really as somebody said polishing the brass in the sinking ship right christ is about to come back let's get let's get away from those corrupt denominations let's get ready let's meet together let's break bread let's be brothers and sisters let's be brethren yes yeah. and uh, and let's wait for jesus and that is what they do 
Wow. That is a great summary. Thank you for taking time to work through it. And, and honestly, I, connecting it to the political history is so important because this is how we end up being in a place where we bring our lens to scripture and we interpret it then in light of what's happening in our world. And so then what ends up happening decades later, um, the Schofield Reference Bible, um, then would you say that's the moment that where these ideas are popularized pop, popularized globally? Yeah, it, exactly, Andy. So by the end of the 19th century, the Bible conference movement takes off, most famously, I suppose, in Niagara. Mm -hmm. um, and a, a lot of Wesleyans, Baptists, Presbyterians begin to absorb some of these ideas. So Darby and others begin to transmit these ideas across into the United States. Um, Evangelical publishing, of course, takes off in this period. And what publishers love to do is publish anything that's out of copyright. And they discover that all of these brethren who were developing these ideas in Ireland and England, because they expected the second coming to happen <laughs> instantaneously, hadn't bothered to copyright their works. Oh, and so all, all of these, all of these uh, American evangelical publishers begin to pick up all of this material. They publish it, they distribute it. Um, and of course, the inevitable happens um, doom has its prophets, the prophets of doom, uh, especially for evangelical publishers who publish books about doom yeah. <laughs> uh, or about eschatology. And, um, and, you know, these ideas spread and spread, but they spread in such a way that a lot of the really radical claims that were made by this group in Ireland about the church are dismissed and ignored. And what comes to prominence is simply their views of the end times. Yeah. And so 1909, the Schofield Reference Bible comes out. Schofield was a, a Congregationalist. He's a friend of Moody, discipled by D.L. Moody. Uh, he absorbs a lot of Darby's ideas via Moody. Darby and Moody did not get on. Darby was a very strict Calvinist. Mm. Sorry to break it to you, but Moody wasn't. <laughs> um, and, uh, and Schofield picks up on this, but Schofield packs a lot of this into a Bible, edits it, simplifies it, contracts it, um, changes dispensationalism in fundamental ways, from the ways in which Darby and the Brethren had taught it. But that Schofield Reference Bible gets published in 1909 and it republished in 1917. 1917 is a great year to republish an apocalyptic eschatology <laughs> Bible because not only is the First World War destroying, you know, millions of, of, of European government signs the Balfour Declaration, which right. commits them to a home for the Jewish people in the Promised Land, which is an extraordinary moment in the history of Zionism. But 1917 is also the year of the Russian Revolution. And so the year in which the, the Schofield Bible is revised is the year in which so much of its expectations about conflict in the Middle East, about Gog, Magog, all of this kind of stuff, all seems to come together. Mm. And so yeah. it just sells with tens of millions of copies and continues to sell now. And Oxford University Press is the one who published that Bible. And I'm sure that even if there's not many people uh, there who might agree with it, they're sure thankful for the that those bright. <laughs> well, there was one man in 1909 who did agree with it because the, the actual publisher of Oxford University Press was a member of the Exclusive Brethren. And that seems to have been how these ideas oh, were taken on board. But I mean, quite apart from the ideological content of the, the volume, it has been a huge commercial success for that publisher. Yeah. Oh, man, there's so many ways I like to go. We only have a short time left. And you've traced some of this through. I, I, I'm just going to direct people to some of the other books that you have and just you know Google your name. I'll maybe provide some links here as well. But 
looking at the reemergence or the popularization of post-millennial thought in the the Northwest of the United States and some of these things that have come through. I want, I, I, selfishly, I want to get in here. Some of my uh, thoughts about the Salvation Army. Um, I, I'm one, when you think about eschatology being what as we talk, how we talk about the end and, and classically, it's not just the, the end of the cosmos or the universe, but it's also the end of individuals. I've suggested that that's the primary way theologically to understand William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, because he's so connected to a doctrine of hell and heaven for that matter. But he, he likes hell. He talks about hell the most. Um, and on top of that, then there also is this movement toward um, post-millennialism. Now, I found and I, I started my research just as, with the assumption that he's a post-millennialist um, and because he has this one article, it's called The Millennium or the ultimate triumph of Salvation Army principles. <laughs> and, and he walks through uh, an, an image of, of, of Jesus reigning from London and all these type of principles and everybody in the world being in a Salvation Army uniform and these type of ideas. Well, I've been shocked to find like often he's talking about the millennium in general, but only one time in all of his writing can I find where he says that Jesus's will return will come after that millennium. Interesting. And just like we've talked about already, I've found where he's as a result of global events like war, a war in Russia um, in the 1880s, he's, he makes statements where he indicates Jesus's return will come before the millennium. So he's inconsistent. And I, I, and I, I wonder if it's just better, and he often will refer to the millennium and the conversion of the world, saving the world. But I'm not sure. This, so this is my first question. Is the, the idea of conversion of the world or the salvation of the world, is that a post-millennial idea? <laughs> That's, those are really funny contexts, Andy. I would, love to know, I would love to know more about oh, you can ask whether, me. Yeah. Whether, there's, whether there's a moment, uh, yeah. if you can fix a year in which he moves from one to the other, or whether mm -hmm. he's consistently inconsistent, if that makes sense. Yeah, I would think, uh, so his article, The Millennium, comes out in 1890. Right. Um, and then the other stuff, uh, it, but there's other points uh, where he talks about the conversion of the world throughout his ministry from the 1850s yeah. on. So that's what my little, my challenge is yeah. like, he talks about conversion of the world, but the millennium is different. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I mean, if you go back into the 18th century, you get premillennialists, historic premillennialists, obviously, and postmillennialists who all expect the conversion of the world. The only question, I suppose, is will Christ return before that happens or after that happens, that seems to be the pivot uh, between the pre- and post-millennial options at that point. Um, some groups like the particular Baptists, they've got a really curious combination of pre- and post-millennial ideas. So they believe that Christ will convert the world before the millennium, hmm. but, then, but then he comes back and there's a millennium as well. So they have this idea where there is both a latter-day glory, the conversion of the world, and a millennium that follows it. And wow. typically people combine the two, uh, but, but some groups do tease them out and, and dis distinguish them. So it'd be fascinating to, know if, uh, fascinating to know who Booth is reading or who might have been formative in his thinking about some of these ideas uh, and the extent to which he was actually developing that was something that was distinctive for the Salvation Army. Yeah, that's interesting. I think what ends up happening is, as you indicated, the... Um 
the, the holiness movement in the UK seems to be very connected to what's going on in the United States. Right. So the the early leaders, uh, Phoebe Palmer, um, primarily, um, there is a huge influence on Charles Finney, who's often noted for his idea that if we could just do these tasks, like the millennium would come. So yeah. that's a part of that tradition. I mean, and, and that, that statement's often pulled up to indicate that Charles Finley, Finney is a post-millennialist. Do you think that's the case? Do you think Charles Finney is yeah, fitting that well, camp? Honestly, I don't know, Andy, but, but I mean, what I think what is obvious about Finney is that he has a kind of automated idea of spirituality so that if you do these things right this happens which you know from someone from outside that tradition looks a little bit like magical thinking if you pull this lever and this lever you know that this is what's going to happen not quite sure that divine activity is just quite as mechanized as that uh, so you know famously he, he argues that local churches can experience revival if you do this this and this right right uh, and, and it sounds like from what you're saying um he sort of expands that cosmically Yes. Uh, to, to, to say that, you know, if you pull these levers cosmically, um, you're going to get the millennium as a result. Um, not, not totally sure that's right. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's the same spirit like that's in. And it's helpful for you to like set the context for what's going on in the broader tradition. I think it's just easy to label somebody like in this uh, with these ideas. And so like um, William Booth's language is so connected to the new measures of yeah, Finney yeah, and yeah. there's and, and even the holiness theology of Phoebe Palmer is a similar sort of perspective. If you do this, if you consecrate on this altar, it is sanctified. And so then you are sanctified as yeah. opposed to there being like a, a Wesleyan idea of the witness of the spirit, like something that comes from outside of us. And that certainly is a problem. And, and I think William Booth wants definite results. He wants he, people are going to hell all over the world. So we need to do something about it. And as a result, if we do these things, that will happen. So I think he fits into that that uh, train of thought for sure. Well, you okay. need to write about this, Andy, and help I'm us right, all understand I am, it. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, thank you for it. It's not very often I get to talk to somebody who is working these similar ideas. So right, well, let me bounce. I got one more. I can bounce back to the one other idea. And you have written a book called Writing the Rapture, talking about this. Just give me a brief summary of like what there's a whole genre like as you indicated with these publishers who picked up dispensational premillennialism tell, tell us it's more than just left behind i mean left behind comes in a context right it does yeah left behind comes in the context first novel what 1995 i think yeah uh, and expanding over what 16 volumes plus yeah. um movies <laughs> nicholas cage you name it um it's all in there but but left yeah left behind um is the most famous example of, of this rapture novel genre but the rapture novel genre actually goes back right to the beginning of the 19th century i found mm. an example from the 1880s really? of a rapture novel yeah produced by a member of the Plymouth Brethren, which is kind of ironic because they didn't believe in fiction in those okay. days, but they were trying to sanctify fiction. So <laughs> if people are going to read fiction, let's get them something edifying to read. And his idea was, let's get a 20, 20, 30 page little tract, fictional tract, a short story, I suppose we would say, imagining the rapture. Well, funnily enough, uh, Andy, early 20th century, um, it's American Wesleyans who begin to pick up on this. And so, some of the key American um, rapture novelists are Methodists, hmm. um, which is it's kind of interesting. And Baptists then pick it up, and it, it just becomes one of these uh, one of these novel 
uh, genre that never really goes anywhere. The same tropes get picked up from one to the next. You know, there's always there's always a clergyman who gets left behind who <laughs> realizes who realizes he was a liberal, but but it's too late. Um, there's always some interesting references to race. They're very conscious of race, but I suppose they're, they're period pieces in that sense. They're, they, you know, they're reflecting the kinds of concerns of the people who wrote and consumed them, um, who tended to be white people with a particular kind of background, European background. Uh, so on they go, but it's really left behind that that takes off, um, if you can use that kind of language, and uh, <laughs> becomes incredibly successful. Um, so, you know, good for Jerry B. Jenkins and Tim LaHaye. Yeah, sure. Good for them. Well, thanks so much for giving a little summary of that. Crawford, it's such a blessing for me to be able to talk with you. And it's like helping me think through my own my own questions that I'm trying to answer through my own writing. So I pre appreciate the work um, that you've done. I always ask this question. Is there more to the story of Crawford Gribben than we normally hear? I mean, we, we I, I've indicated your writing, but is there something you like to do? Do you like to hike? Do you uh, like to scuba dive? What, what is it about Crawford <laughs> that's not normally told? Yeah, um, nothing. <laughs> that's probably the answer. <laughs> I've got a dog. Does okay, what's your dog's name? Dog. My dog is called Jessie. She's very. She's very fond of me, and I'm very fond of her. There you go. There you go. <laughs> well, Crawford, but, thanks but, for coming but, along. But go ahead. The big question is: the big question is, will my dog be in heaven? Oh, this is now. You can check out the More to Story podcast where I answered that last summer. So uh, I can give a definitive answer uh, to this this question. <laughs> <laughs> Crawford, thanks, thanks so much for your work and and we we appreciate your i appreciate your scholarship and the way that it's it, i believe is serving the church and has been a great help to me so thanks so much for your time today well thanks andy and all the best for your research i look forward to staying in touch about it too <laughs>